Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm interviewing someone who is part of our four-part series where we're talking about growing up in the FLDS church and being sent away, which is, in Mormon language, sort of another form of excommunication, only a little bit different. So we're going to get, we're going to talk about this today. Today I'm meeting with Lawrence Barlow. Uh, Lawrence, can you say hello? Hello, Lindsay. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so we're just going to jump into Lawrence's story. Uh, He is going to tell us where he grew up and sort of how he ends up being a faithful member of the FLDS and being sent away. So I was born and raised in the Hill Del Carro City area. I spent most of my time growing up in that area, volunteering in public safety and in the community functions. I've had a variety of occupations and work that um, has taken me across the country. In my last 20 years or so, I had quite a bit of involvement with with uh, law enforcement, with the public safety and the social services. I spent almost 10, 10 plus years sitting on the safety net committee as one of the only FLDS that were willing to come to the table on that created a lot of friendships and relationships with those who were willing to come to the table and and have discussion on that. Okay, so I'm interested in your involvement in law enforcement when you talk about that there's a lot of a lot of rumors and stereotypes and misconceptions about FLDS law enforcement. Will you tell us about your involvement and what your role was and sort of how the system is set up down there? I was only a, a volunteer. I was never a certified officer. I was selected once to go to police academy by the church authorities. And at the last minute, for whatever reason, they didn't explain. I was unselected and someone else was asked to go, which I bent over backwards to make that work for them. But mostly I, I worked in the 911 center and the dispatch center, um, volunteered with them in their search and rescue helped in some of their training capacities and worked in in that aspect. Now, is that seen as a calling in your church, a, a service to your church, or was it, you said volunteer, so I'm assuming you weren't paid. That's correct. I was not paid. And I guess I should also add right now, I don't represent the city. I don't represent the church. I don't, I'm just speaking of my own self. And so I don't, I don't speak with authority to matters of the church. I haven't lived in the community. I was gone for a couple years when I was sent away. I haven't been in in that capacity for over five years. So. so let's get into that. So you are you a Cricker or a Salt Laker? Where were you born? Born in Short Creek, Hilldale, and worked with my father there and volunteered in the in the community projects and the boys crew i worked in the dairy began to volunteer with the fire department and the dispatch center at a very early age so explain to us what the boys crew is actually the year i was born and uncle roy asked my father actually to gather the young men that were out for the summer break of school and give them something constructive to do and it was affectionately known for a lot of years as Uncle Roy's boys. 
and we would meet in the mornings, um, do cleanup projects on the streets and, and areas, come back, and then the bishop served a lunch for the boys, and then we would go home and have our afternoons. So that was the boys' crew. Are those positive memories? Did you did you enjoy that? For the most part, yes. <laughs> I was a young man. And sometimes I didn't like working as hard as I was asked to, but other than that, it was really good. Okay, so you grow up in the community. Your your father seems to be a man of prominence. Do you want to talk about him? Uh, just generally, that I have a lot of love and respect for him. Um, he was one of the pioneers and, and helped to develop the uh, fire district in the city and the school district and things, and uh, have a lot of love and respect for him. You grew up in the Crick, and you had, by your account, a happy childhood. Talk to me about, as you get older, um, you get married, maybe, your experience with the church. My, my childhood was not unlike any other. It had its ups and downs, things of that nature, but I was anxious to be to be faithful and to be used. I wanted to be included. Part of that volunteering was to draw close and felt like that was part of my worthiness. My marriage was arranged through the through the leadership and we believed was revealed and ordained, which I'm I'm grateful. We still have a twenty plus year marriage and it's been a a great relationship. And how old were you and your wife when you were married? I was 21. She was 25. But uh, So we we moved on with taking our responsibilities, as they were called. But um. Okay, so you grew up in the church. Did you take on plural wives? I did not. I grew up in a plural family, and I have a love for the principle and an, and an understanding and appreciation for it. The way I was un- always understood the law was that it was something that had to be ordained of the Lord and had to be revealed and, and directed in that way. So I was never called to that work, and I never did. So it sounds like that even though you, it's been five or so years since you've been, you've been out of the church, that you still have a testimony and a belief in the gospel. I do have a testimony in the gospel and the, the fullness of the gospel. I've, I've had a serious paradigm shift as to the dogma of the culture, as I'll call it. And that's, that's very, um, I would say that's probably the deepest sense of betrayal I've ever felt in my life. But I don't allow that to rob me of the testimony that I have of the faithfulness of the principle and the gospel that was are revealed in its purity. So I appreciate that, and I'm asking out of selfish reasons, because a lot of the work that I do has to deal with people in the LDS Church who find out church history. And, and from our perspective, a lot of us don't know the history that you grow up knowing, and then when we find it out, we also feel a sense of betrayal. But you have seemed to manage to hold on to your testimony. A lot of people that leave the church, ex-Mormons as we'll, we'll call them, lose their faith in God altogether because it's so tied in. So how are you able to see that, you know, maybe your leadership had it wrong, but still maintain faith? Does that make sense, what I'm asking? Honestly, I I have a unique perspective, I feel like, and that was in a time that I was 
severed from my family and sent away forever to never return or have communication. I, um, I come to know God in a very personal way, and I have a testimony of him and the work that he's doing that no man gave me and no man can take from me. That's beautiful. Thank you. Well, let's start talking about that. Let's talk about what leads to this, because as you know, we've talked to a faithful member of the FLDS Church who has talked about apostates being sent away to be protected. And I, and I want to talk about apostate rhetoric, and I'm going to talk about that in these episodes that I'm doing. But all groups have these, and this exists within Mormonism, and it has since the early days of the church. But the term apostate has a function, and it's to serve the hierarchical institution, right? And so in the LDS church, we have this too, and we have stories about why people are excommunicated. And I remember watching, there was a documentary on the Mormons that PBS had done, and they were talking about the September 6th, who are uh, LDS people in 1993 that were excommunicated for various reasons. Uh, some of them were printing history, like D. Michael Quinn, and some were starting their own um, sort of radical translations of the Bible. There's all kinds of reasons. But we had an LDS scholar, Terrell Givens, on, on, who was a man that I know and respect. And he said something interesting. He said, the LDS church cannot discuss why they excommunicate people, because that would be sort of a breach of the, what's it called, the priest-parishioner relationship. And so we don't ever really know why they're excommunicated. They say that it's because they're writing history, but it could be something else. And that's this sort of weird signaling that we do in the church, which means it could be an adultery. It could be some weird sex thing. We're not quite sure what it is. And that language is really, really harmful. And we see it played out in the LDS church. And it's certainly something that I have learned that the FLDS church does. And we heard that in this interview to say that from a believer's mind, God would never make a leader cut someone off for no reason. It has to be justified and it has to be true and it has to be for the protection of others. So I really want to dig into that and I and be as open as you're comfortable being. But walk us through how this happens and how you get to this point and talk to us about being sent away and all of that. Can I back up to my grandfather's story a little bit? And when the manifesto was signed... It was at the request of the members who were under persecution. And the Lord arranged a way for the validity of his work to be maintained. With that, the church gave a declaration or a press dispatch saying, this is our declaration that we will no longer live this way. And in that, there was the shunning that happened among the members that was near unbearable. And our forefathers, our grandfathers, would not forsake their families. And they were driven into the wilderness, into a place called Short Creek. And that's how a homestead became a village, became a community. That's what we were born into. As speaking to myself, we have this mantra, if you want to call that, or a dogma, if you want to call it that, that God and the prophet always and only do right. And one of the things that I come to understand in my personal relationship with the Lord was I have not the capacity to judge God and to stand on that dogma creates a dichotomy. And if they can control the language of the dichotomy, then you have the basic building block of a cult. And so in this thing, I was at the end of 2011. We were all anxious to be part of the United Order. I was interviewed and judged as not worthy of membership and was 
uniquely, it seemed like, made a caretaker over my own family. So explain that to outsiders, because we have a lot of people who have been following this podcast, but if someone is tuning in for the first time, what what is the process? What is a caretaker? Why are people made caretakers? What does this mean? And is it a good thing in the community or a bad thing or sort of a demotion promotion? I can just tell you from my perspective, and that was that the marriage relation had been by holy edict suspended basically no more relations without directive yes and also lyle but uh, so when you were judged unworthy and made a caretaker most of the time they would just be sent away immediately and someone else was made caretaker over their their family okay so let me see if i'm getting this right so warren jeffs through his brother lyle lyle is the bishop of short creek or was the Bishop of Short Creek. Warren suspends all marriages, which means all marriages are annulled, basically, or you're not allowed to be intimate with your marriage partner. There are no new marriages. And those who are unworthy are um, assigned caretakers. So you become a caretaker, which means you're sort of the chaperone of your wife. If I Normally, if a man was found unworthy, he was sent away from the community alone to repent and we were all told that they were on a repentance mission. But most of the time they were told to just go away forever, never to return. A caretaker is someone that's considered worthy, worthy enough to be entrusted with this family. Okay, sorry. That's what I had thought, but I thought I had misunderstood you. So a caretaker was a worthy person who could stay in contact with their family, but not be intimate with their partner, uh, just sort of be a chaperone be there to check in and to take care of the family. But most men were sent away. And, and you called it a repentance mission. This is the FLDS take. You guys had work missions. You had other sorts of more clandestine missions if you were in the leadership. And this was a repentance mission. Um, but you were found worthy or unworthy? I was found unworthy to go on to the UO or the United Order. And so as I went home, and gathered my family around, I tried to facilitate their advancement. And in my mind, thinking, you know, if I if I need to repent of something so that I can catch up to my family and to the work, then I didn't want to hold them back. Okay, so another thing I can't remember if we've covered on this podcast or not. In the FLDS right now, it's set up that there's, you just said the UO. The UO is the United Order, and that's sort of the higher level of the church, those who are in good standing with the church, good favor of the church. And I've heard that there are multiple levels, but at the bottom, it's the repentance or restoration group. Trevor Jeffs talked about this in in our episode. He was sent away for swearing or watching something on his iPad. Um, And so you were trying to get into the United Order because the United Order has benefits, right? You get to eat out of the bishop's storehouse. You get certain things. That wasn't... That wasn't the motive for that. We were understanding that this was the millennial reign, and we understand that the the two crowning principles of the gospel are the celestial and plural marriage and the united order. And those who are worthy to go into the millennium and be part of the millennial reign will qualify for those things. So it wasn't like I was trying to negotiate for food or, or anything. I guess in the cult mindset or in the group think. I just didn't want to get left behind. 
Yeah, that makes sense to me. And and certainly I think that most people who believe it would say that too. It, it really wasn't about the benefits. But what I'm hearing for those who were in the repentance or restoration group is that they really did suffer in ways that the UO, the UO didn't and they had access they didn't have access to things that you did. So you were deemed unworthy, but you weren't sent away at this time. Not for about 10 months. And that was probably the biggest pressure cooker I've ever lived under. Okay, so walk us through this process first, and then I want to talk about those 10 months. So how is it in a public meeting? Because I have heard that Warren or Lyle would get up and send corrections to men in public meetings. So picture this, LDS people. Picture you're sitting in sacrament meeting. And, you know, Joseph Smith used to do this too. So this is in line with the old early days of the church. They would stand up, the leader would stand up, point to someone in the crowd and say, you know, we've discerned you're unworthy or you, you're unworthy and you need to repent. Warren would do this and um, send people away to correct themselves. And, and uh, the FLDS would say Warren was giving corrections to somebody. So how does, how does all of this happen now that Warren's in jail? How are you deemed unworthy? How, what pro, what's the process like? It's not unlike the bishop in the Mormon church who is the common judge of Israel and have the responsibility to judge his stake or his, or his um, ward. But honestly, I was, I was kept at arm's length as this transition was happening. And I never was in a lot of those closed-door meetings. And probably for good reason, because of my close connection with law enforcement and outside agencies, they didn't, they didn't want me privy to a lot of that. But there were a few times that we would sit and listen to a, either a recorded message or someone read a, a message from Warren that would rattle off a name, a list of names of all of these people that have been found unworthy never to return. And at the end, they would always require of you to show by a raise of hand whether you acknowledge this of the Lord or if you were in consent with what the Lord hath done type of a thing. Okay, and that part's important. When you were telling me your story, I didn't pick up on this because in the LDS Church, we have a similar doctrine that or process that we don't take very seriously. We ask to, for a sustaining vote. We raise our right hand, and everybody sort of does it. I remember sleepily doing it, going to other people's ward with their ward business, and just out of habit putting my hand up. Um, this is different because this is religious law that you have to be in line with your leader. So I want you to explain the tension here and why this becomes a complication for you. A lot of this goes back to the group think or peer pressure or the shunning, as it were. If you dare sit in a meeting that you're quote unquote trusted with this kind of information and you don't raise your hand in consent, then you're obviously in dissent. And if you're in dissent, you're out of harmony with the leadership and out of harmony with the Lord's work, and you're not worthy to be there. And the church had a, um, a uh, high-tech camera right above the podium, and they could zoom into the faces of anyone in the crowd. And they had a control room where they were monitoring the crowd closer than they were monitoring the premise. Wow. I mean, that's so intense. It's, it just takes everything to, to a new level. So you're in there and it's discerned somehow. I don't know how they figure this out that you're unworthy. What do they accuse you of? When I was sent away from my family and 
the permanent separation. I was honestly working six hours away from home on a construction job. I got a phone call and it was, you know, oh, by the way, here's the new bishop of Short Creek. Stand by for a message, which I had no no idea there was a change of of leadership or anything. The new bishop came on, read this message that the Lord supposedly revealed that I was honestly guilty of it, everything unforgivable. And if you're in the Mormon culture, you know that list. And uh, in my heart, I knew there was no way any of that was true. Yet there is a there is a doctrine that was been drilled into us that was taught in the teachings of the prophet Joseph, where he said, "Brethren, in all your kicking and floundering, see to it that you do not betray priesthood or prove." a betrayer of the brethren, or, sorry, don't betray priesthood and don't be an accuser of the brethren. And that that really had a strong hold in my heart at the time. And I, I reasoned and logic was, this can't be true. So is God lying and he's not truthful? Or is the prophet lying and he's not truthful? Or is the bishop lying and that's not truthful? None of those things were in keeping with me maintaining my testimony or my hope of heaven. And after about the fifth time of asking them to make sure that was really my name on the revelation, they finally said, you have to, you have to acknowledge. Do you accept it or acknowledge it? Yes or no? And I just simply said, I don't know how it can be. But I guess if he says it's so, then I need to go figure out how it can be. And instantly, there was a change in the tone of voice. And the bishop just simply said, we were told that we wouldn't even know the hearts of the men in our own country. And there were murderers and wicked men right among us. And I was immediately told to go far, far away, never come back, have no further contact and to distance myself from anyone that had connection with the community. Okay, so to recap and tell me if I'm telling your story back to you the way that you experienced it, you get this call from this new bishop who you've never met. and he- I met him. I know who he was. I knew he was, I knew who he was, I guess, in the bishopric or in the confidence of the bishop. So it wasn't a question of authority or authenticity. I just, you understand from the Mormon culture is that if there's a new bishop appointed to your ward, there are ward meetings called, and then the members are informed of the thing from a higher authority, and you are all given an opportunity to sustain that calling. wasn't anything like that. So you're brought in, you get a phone call, you've been working, and you're accused of unforgivable sins, which I'm assuming for Mormon culture are murders of myriad of sexual sins. Uh, did they go into detail, or do they just do they have a code word for this unforgivable sins, and you're supposed to accept that? No, I was very specifically accused of murder, adultery, sinning against the Holy Ghost, betraying the brethren, proving a traitor to priesthood, denying the Christ, anything that was unforgivable. I forgot all the rest of them. So you're out there working six hours a day, and then you're murdering and pillaging and raping and doing all these terrible things. Yeah, 
which is hindsight, looking back on it, it's it's almost laughable in its absurdity. But it wasn't then. Being six hours away from home, I knew that if I said, no, that's a lie, my family would have been gone before I got home. And I felt like the only only option I had to try to salvage my family was to agree with them. As the Savior said, agree with your enemy quickly while you're in his way. So this is so intense when I'm thinking about this moment where you're working, being loyal to the church. You've been loyal to the church your entire life. And here now you're faced with this moment when you're being accused of things. You don't dare defend yourself quite outright because then it's a betrayal. You're really put in this lose-lose situation. And I want listeners for a minute just to pause the episode and digest the situation and understand this conflict. And then I want you to go back and think of the rhetoric here of maybe the faithful and they're saying why people are sent, sent away. From your perspective, if you're a faithful believer and you're told that your neighbors, all these men have these secrets and they're murdering and committing adultery and denying the Holy Ghost and all of these things, what a scary feeling that is to really believe that. But I can only imagine it's a bit more terrifying to be in that seat and be accused of it, knowing that you, knowing that all you've been doing is working very hard all day, and knowing that what you say in these moments is going to affect the rest of your life and your family. I've never had my heart sink quicker than to concede that there could be any truth to that and to immediately receive the wrath of you're a wicked, unforgivable sinner and you've got to go away forever. There's that point when you realize that was the wrong choice. But if I had said otherwise, it would have also been the wrong choice. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. What happens if you say, no, 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 I didn't do it? Um, obviously, it's very clear that you're programming. You know, you. know, How old were you at this point? I was in my 40s. So you'd have 40 years of this script of we do not defy the priesthood. 40 years of that practiced over and over coming to a head. And so if you would have, I mean, it's almost near impossible because of that to, to say no. But what would have played out had you have... How do you have argued with them about it? I can only imagine. I I want to speak to what I've experienced. And I can just tell you that I'm certain that if I had de- defied the bishop, who was supposedly reading this revelation directly from the prophet Warren, who received it directly from the Lord, that was... That is not something that, that's called open rebellion or outright apostasy. And in a way, you're in a terrible position, right? Because this is coming directly from the Lord. So it's as if you're telling the Lord, you're a liar, Lord. You're a liar. And then your accusations become true, right? That you're denying the Holy Ghost. I mean, here it is. It's such a catch-22. You can't win. That's one of the lessons I learned about a cult mindset is their self-fulfilling prophecies. And I'll admit, my faith in the Lord was pretty well shaken. And I did leave. I called them back and told them that I wanted to come get my things. What they didn't tell me is that they had already called my family and coached them on what a wicked, evil man I was and that what a danger I was to them and that they would have people to protect them 
nearby if they needed help, and that when I show, I had to be out of the house within the hour. And as I came back to the house long enough to get my things, it was very confusing that my children and my wife were eager to get me out of there. And I, I suffered under that, wondering, did they want me gone? Was it better that I was gone? And it wasn't until some years later that we've healed those bridges. And the rest of the story was this was their programming and their coaching, which made sense. Yeah, and your wife is sitting here next to you today. And um, and I, I don't want to speak your story, but maybe you can talk about how your family would have heard this. I imagine just being being an LDS woman, we have something not definitely not as intense, but we talk a lot about pornography in our church and we're taught as women that it's sort of our job to distrust our husbands on this because they're going to always be looking and it's sort of our job to be the gatekeeper of this. And so when men look at porn, women take it very personally as if they have been betrayed or that they have somehow failed in their marriage. And so I'm wondering if maybe your wife heard this revelation, believed it because you've been far away and felt betrayed too. So she was hurt or do you want to explain how they experienced that? Maybe she can speak to her at another time. From what I've learned, it was that she was also in the same place I was, that she didn't dare stand up and say, that is not my husband of 18 years. That is not the man I married, and this is not in keeping with who we are. For I'm I'm a pretty good judge of character, and my husband is not these things. Yeah, and that's actually really powerful and speaks to your relationship, I think, that, that in spite of that, you guys are sort of trapped in that you have to act out the script because for your wife, she would have been sent away too. I mean, she would have lost your kids, correct? There's a little more to the story. We were we were blessed with our firstborn son was a special needs or a handicapped child. And when we tried for another, we were blessed with spontaneous identical triplet boys. And all three of them were special needs. And we had we had three special needs boys. We had another son and two of my sons passed on. So she was sitting here with three special needs children plus another five girls. And I have always been the provider for the home. I've always been someone that takes care of of the the assistance program or the medical needs. That's my career. I have an understanding of medicine. She was raised on a farm. She's loving. She doesn't have an enemy in the world. But she doesn't understand legal rights and medical jargon and how to navigate the system of medicine and to tear that support away from her and to sentence her to figure it out was something I knew was incompatible with with her health and welfare. And when I was separated, I made sure that when I left, I left her with one of my check cards. Of course, that's where the money came for my boys for Social Security, and it needed to stay available to the boys. And that was part of the excuse. Normally, they would say, burn their pictures, you know, distance yourself from anything. 
but because she was wise enough to just say, no, this is the boy's money. I have to keep this card. I can't lose this phone. This is where the, the state assistance program calls. Then the bishop gave leniency on some of that. And fortunately for me, I could, I could see their spending. I could see their phone because it was my account and I could tend it and I kept it active. And when I saw that they were getting low on funds, I would make sure to put some funds there in a way that I had no contact and, and for a long time was earnest in my repentance effort. We were told immediately to go write a full letter of confession to spare no detail. Foolishly, you go and confess to anything that you might have maybe thought or maybe could have been accused of and not sure, but maybe I'll throw that in too. But all that is is it sits on the desk of the bishop as further evidence of your wrongdoing. Does that mean that you wrote a letter admitting to things you didn't do? I mean, I understand what you're saying because we, we you know, just talked to Roy Jess and he talks about confessing to his father every little tiny sin in good heavens. Nobody wants to hear that from anybody's brain because we all do those things, right? But, you know, your leadership is requiring it. So I understand the part about anything that could be construed as a wicked thought or an evil thought or a lustful thought. But what about the things you were accused of doing that you didn't do? I'll speak a little bit to this concept of murder. One of my triplets died at nine weeks old. And because we have this ordinance called dedicating them to the Lord and praying for the Lord's will to be done, and I dedicated my son to the Lord without Warren's express permission or direction, and this son died somehow in this twisted sense of trying to confess, trying to make right, the Lord in saying he can't be wrong, that somehow in this thing, I had told the doctors his heart rate was unsustainable and his breathing had quit and they were fighting so hard when it was so far gone. And because I told them to stop, somehow I was guilty of murder. And so I would confess that, yeah, that could be true, I guess, maybe I should have fought harder for my son's life, and somehow I should have should have been consistent with checking in or getting permission to to know when when it was right. And so, in all those things, there's in the desperation of the moment, you're going to confess to anything to maintain the integrity of your relationship with the Lord. And that is that God and the prophet always and only do right. Okay, so again, the system is stacked against you because now there's evidence to back up what you said. It's in your own hand. And if someone were to contest it, here's the letter showing that you've confessed to these things. Most certainly any time that I was interviewed, there was a tape recorder on the table. And any time there was a, a, quote, phone call of correction, it was a recorded or documented or witnessed. And when I acknowledged that this, I didn't know how it could be true, but I guess it must, then it was the immediate judgment of the bishop by your own voice of confession, you are now guilty of these things. I mean, I've heard these stories before, but for some reason, just the way you're telling it, I'm having the hardest time wrapping my brain around it. Um, 
It's, it's so intense for you. And, you know, and then I'm thinking of my interview I did with a faithful member, Irene, and she, you know, just the way that she sees it, this is the, this is the complicated dichotomy because you're really set up to fail. I mean, everyone that I have met that has been sent away are good people. They're good, honest people. I work on projects with them. I would trust them with my kids. And yet in amongst your own people, you're vilified. Appreciate you saying that. The, um, I'll say this in good faith to my loved ones that are still there. We are highly invested in being right, even to the point of setting aside doing right. We will set aside doing what's right in order to be right. And that is the real warning I would issue to them. That was the hard lesson I learned, that I would rather do right today than to be right. Yeah, and it's this kind of, um, you know, when Martin Luther of the Reformation nails his thesis to the door, it's the here I stand moment, right? Where you realize, if I have to go to hell to do the right thing, then I'll go to hell, because maybe I'm in hell already. Uh, that's a year after you get sent away. It usually takes you a year to, to break that down. It literally does. So let's talk about that first year. What do you do? I can't, I can't imagine the fear, the shame, the confusion you're feeling as you're packing up your stuff. Your family is now rejecting you. It's all happening so quickly. Talk to us about you know, packing up your stuff and where do you go? Where do you drive? What are you supposed to be doing on your repentance mission? I probably had an unfair advantage over many who have been sent away. I had many friends and confidants and people of good relation in other plural communities, as well as state officials, as well as the, the Mormon, the corporate Mormon church. And I had those friends that, that immediately reached out to me. Or should I say, I had enough confidence in them that I dared reach out the day I went, or I drove away. And they pulled me close, and for about two weeks while I hit, I hit bottom hard, and they they put me in a place of safety where I wouldn't do self-harm or I wouldn't do things of despair. And it was that kindness that had been invested so, so generously that is what started to turn my world around. After a couple of weeks, I moved into my own facility. I got my own job, had a lot of alone time and quiet time. And sometimes those conversations are more brutal than the, than the letters of correction, if you want to call it that. But I fought hard to try to, to get back into a place of good standing. So what is required of that to get back in good standing? How do you, is there like a handbook on this? What do you do? It's all done through hearsay. It's all done through well, surely you can do it. So-and-so's been sent away twice, and he's come back and been restored. So there's hope. But there was no hope. And that was, you were sent away, never to return, and you're not to have any further communication. That was the edict. And in my frail effort to write letters of confession, there was a time where many of my friends in the state government called me and said there's this news article out in the Salt Lake Tribune about the seed bear ordinance when it first came out 
And they said, no. But um, she wanted to know if I'd explain it. And I said, no, because it doesn't deserve explaining. But just needless to say that it was made clear to me that if my daughters were involved in this thing, I was made aware of it. And if I didn't act in their best interest and remove them from the risk or the involvement of abuse, I could be culpable in this or negligent, if you want to call that. I did something that was so dangerously scary to me. I came home without permission. And I called my wife in the early hours of the morning, and I had friends with me in a vehicle. I was ready to move my family to safety. And I on purpose came early while the children were still asleep because I wanted to know. I trusted her implicitly. And if she said, no, this isn't involved or no, this isn't true, I would dare trust her. But I told her this stuff is being put out there. And if it is true, and if our children are going to meetings that we don't know about, we're at risk. And I made her promise me that if ever there was a time where she couldn't protect those girls or my boys, that she would contact me and I would come and gather them up. Now, this is interesting, too, and I know you don't want to explain the seed bearers, but I'm going to try to do it as broadly as possible without making you uncomfortable. The seed bearer was was something that was rumored for a long time, but now we know from court evidence that basically since the marriages were annulled, I believe it was 15 men that were ordained to impregnate women through the town through an ordinance of seed bearing, and uh, it was very ritualized, and they would impregnate uh, young girls even. And so... You were concerned about that for your daughters. I think the interesting thing for me that I want to ask you about is in this cult mindset, to use your words, I don't like to use the word cult, but I think it can apply here. You are willing to do things that harm yourself, to leave your family, to accept these sins, to question yourself, to torture yourself over it. But it's clear that you're that you have a moral line that's deep, deep down somewhere in you that you know that this for you crosses that line. I mean, I have to admit this is this is an old FLDS stereotype in my mind when you said uh, I made my wife promise that she would protect those girls, and in my mind, the FLDS version of protection is a little bit more fluid. They don't see underage marriages as dangerous, but somehow this crossed the line. Do you think it's because? You could maybe punish yourself, but when it came to your own children, how would you explain it? I soften that word by saying culture that we grew up in. I would, in my mind, I was literally willing to put my life on the line between all harm and them. And with that, I would just assume, I would just assume go pay a price to buy them time or to sort this thing out, I'll let, I'll let the conflict come to me, and I'll deal with it. But when it comes to that, there were, there were things that I weren't willing to sit by, idly by. Of course, she wasn't in a mindset to go right then. And like you said, when you're 
you know, I've been out for six months or more by the time that came down. So I had a little bit of clarity about me to where that was definitely a line that should not be crossed, not with my daughters, not with anybody's daughters. But living in it, it was so repulsive and so, so absurd and so wicked for anybody to even think like that. How dare you speak like that? That I was not... I was not involved in those conversations. I have no firsthand knowledge of it. It was just simply that this was made public through the article in the Tribune. And that was something I was not willing to risk having my daughters involved in. So I left them there with that promise. But of course, they were in a place where to best protect the family, they made an immediate full confession to the bishop that I had come and that they didn't bother to call and reprimand me. What they did is they just took my phones that I was paying for my family and gave them to boys on projects all over the nation. And suddenly I saw my phones, which I thought was my daughter's phone and my wife's phone in states far, far away. And I naturally began to panic. Of course, they walked her down to the Social Security office and reported that the uh, benefits need to be stopped in, in my name as the, as the um, representative pay and that, that needs to go to another account, walked her through a process of setting up her own account, and now I had no way of knowing whether they had what they needed or not. Of course, they immediately moved them in the night to a different location, so if anybody was telling me where they were, what was going on, they were immediately disappeared, and of course, the mind game was that they were moved, and now they're scattered all across the nation, and I had no way to, to do that, but in an effort to do honor to my family's needs, I would, I would work damn hard and live on ramen noodles and take everything else and send it to them in a in a money order or in something to say this is for this family this is to help my wife and these children i assume they cashed them there was one towards the end where they just returned it i thought well maybe they couldn't they couldn't um cash it so i went so far as to to send the cash to them in an envelope, and uh, it was it was just very abruptly returned with like a ransom note, great big bold print paper on a paper saying, you know, cease your communications and no, no further contact. So I've heard that it takes about a year for people to be sent away till they realize they have legal rights to their kids and to maybe even to their home, you know, in the last five years. Explain when that happened, that occurs for you. I'll just say it's the normal human grieving process. But when you're dealing with a cultural issue of such magnitude, it does take about a year to, to unravel that, to, to come to that place. It wasn't until they had completely shunned me and penalized my family, as it were, that I really hit hit that brink of despair. And by the grace of God and at the brink of despair, I had a divine intervention 
and I have a very personal relationship with Christ that no man gave me and no man can take. And it's through that courage and that rock of my salvation that I was able, three months later, when she was, she had a massive stroke, my wife. And I was advised that she was on life support and that they intended to discontinue life support that night. I had the legal background. I had the medical background. I called the switchboard, had them put me through to the doctors and nurses. They immediately gave me a bunch of interference by just handing me off to someone from the bishop's office that was waiting at the, at the hospital with my wife. And they were just cold, disinterested, uncooperative. And it was through other relationships that I was able to get a communication to a charge nurse in the hospital. And she walked down there and said, these people have been married for 18 years. They are not divorced. And he is the only man that has any say in the matter. You better call him back. And the hospital did a courageous thing. And they honored that right. There was a lot of pushback. And I got a lot of a lot of resistance. And some of the very people that you're interviewing are the people that ran a lot of interference with my family and did what they could to destroy that opportunity. But it was with good coaching. I had some superb coaching. And it was to be immovable in my peace. I did know the law. I did have the contacts and connections. And more importantly, the church knew that I did. And when I threatened legal action, they didn't push it. They would push it to the very fine line, but they wouldn't ever let it go over the edge. But they did make me push it clear to the limit. But that was that was how I repatriated with my wife was to come home and find her on full life support. And I want to talk about this, but if this is not, if this makes you uncomfortable or if you don't want it, cause I know you, you've been very clear with me that you only want to speak to your experience, but I'm hoping you could help us understand why people would interfere with you and your wife or you and your family from their mindset. What is their perspective? What is going through their head? Do they, do they have ill intent or is it a righteously motivated? I would have to say in their, in good faith, they were trying to do the right thing. They were trying to save her from a fate worse than death, that she would be kidnapped in their eyes by a wicked apostate and that her chances of salvation would be stolen. And so they fought with, with some pretty amazing zeal. They don't use the term love bomb. That's a cult term, but they sure practiced it. They sent 70-plus women down there one night to try to convince her that there was more that loved her here than me and that they needed, she needed to choose to send me away again. And there was, my wife had a near-death experience, and there were some very tender things that she saw on the other side. That when she came back, there was no, there was no pretense, and she would not, she would not support that. They, they had a, they had a, 
tradition, if you want to call it, where especially these families that have been separated from their, their husbands, they would make sure that a priesthood member was sitting at the bedside or somewhere where they could um, referee or protect her or protect them from these apostate influences. And though I was there and there was nothing they could do to remove me, they still imposed having people sit in the room day and night. And I could have made an issue and and expelled them. The hospital would have expelled them. But out of respect for my wife, they were family members and others that I just I just endured it. Did your wife ask you to leave at this point? She never did. One of the things that was interesting was they would ask me to go out because the members, the faithful members, couldn't be in the same room if I was in there. And so at dinner time or something, I would take an hour and go get dinner and let them have their time. But every time I'd come back and my wife's vitals were in disarray and she was agitated and distressed and her, her stroke was being affected and they were so determined to get or to be right that they would put her health at risk. And uh, one particular night, I was working really hard with her to try to calm her. There was something very agitating to her. And I I was up by her face because she had a, a ventilator tube in, and I was trying to understand what her need was. And I just heard a voice say, get out of the way. I'm working in the hearts of these women. And I turned and looked, and these women had her by a hold of her feet under the covers and were, were rubbing her feet very vigorously, trying to keep her attention on them instead of me. And it was just creating distress. I left and went out into a chapel area. And when I came back about an hour later, she was back on life support. And... Uh, that was the last time the nurses allowed those influences to have contact with her. They had to stay at distance. Wow. I mean, this is so powerful. I, I think this is such an experience to go through, and I don't think that people see this, right? One of the interesting circumstances when I came in the morning that I came, I showed up at 5 in the morning, and my oldest daughter and my wife's sister was asleep in the waiting room at the intensive care unit. And I walked right past them and went in. When my daughter awoke and came in and realized I was there, she had a look of horror because she knew I wasn't supposed to be there. And she immediately fled with her aunt. One of the hospital staff witnessed that and called 911 and reported a kidnapping in progress. Because both parents are right here, and someone's dragging her out the door. And they knew it was my child. But because of the, I don't know, the political drama has drug on, and it just kind of becomes routine or mundane, they ended up stopping at the Walmart parking lot. And unbeknownst to them, as the, the whole area was being shut down and cordoned off by law enforcement, until the local officer came up and could see they were in distress and, 
and just made a, a snap judgment that oh it's just it's just FLDS everything's good here and they released it which he should not have done he should have asked for identification and relationship and that child should have been returned back to the parent at the hospital but I didn't realize that that had happened my children were under the care of their grandfather in Hildell and I trusted them with him a little while longer while I stayed with my wife at the hospital. I made it clear that when I called for my children, they would come or someone was going to answer for kidnapping charges. There was a particular woman that took my children from that home in Hildale without permission and moved them across the state line into her home. And she, these were not the only children. She had many children that were parentless in her home. And in a sense was doing good. She was probably under an an assignment from the church to do this. But she did her best in two months to absolutely destroy the love of those children for their parents. And when I called for my children, finally, on my 40th birthday, I went and gathered up my five daughters, and it was one of the most vindictive, painful experiences. They were, they were very programmed to be hateful and hurtful. So this experience is quite common for people who are sent away and their kids are sort of reassigned, is the word that you would use, to all different families. And outsiders, this blows their mind that this could even happen. Why, Of course they're your kids. Why can't you just go get your kids? And of course, I imagine you had to go through a lawyer to get your kids, and, and we can let you talk about that. But you go and get your children, and in the time that the children are away or kidnapped or reassigned, they are told terrible things about you. Maybe that you're abusive or you're alcoholic or you molested them or, or you're a sinner or a murderer. And I've even heard um, kids taught that it's their religious duty to fight against you or they're condemning you to hell as well, as well as their entire family. Do you want to talk about some of the things that is said and goes on? I don't know specifically what was told to them, but I know that they felt like it, it was more important than their life to protect the prophet and that I was a mortal enemy of the prophet because I came home and gathered up my family against his wishes or advice. And I was specifically told not to do this, and I did it anyway. And that made me a mortal enemy to them. But I didn't specifically have to go through an attorney. What I tried to do is pick up the pieces with their Medicaid case, but my wife had instructed the Medicaid worker that I, we were estranged and that they weren't to give me any information. And so they just said, well, we understand. But because this was our last communication with her, short of a guardianship order of the court, we're not going to tell you anything. So I'd go to Social Security and they're like, we were told not to talk to you. So unless you have a court order for fiduciary duty, a fiduciary order over her, then we're not going to talk to you. And those were the little landmines that were laid in the way. So I went back to the court, and with the help of an attorney, we laid the matter out. She had a 96% insult to her left brain. 
and then the court readily accepted that she was a dependent adult and made her a ward of the state and awarded me guardianship and conservator, which gave me de facto guardianship and sole say over my children. So when I called for my children, that order was in place, and it was in very specific terms explained to them that that house would get a knock on the door at four in the morning, and an FBI raid would happen, and every child would be moved to safety. And through whatever they needed, DNA testing or whatever, they would not be returned to kidnappers. They would be returned to their biological parents. That was not something they were willing to gamble or risk, so they returned my children to me. I want to talk about that, but I also want to bring up something that you just mentioned, these landmines, because this is something that I think a lot of outsiders don't understand as well. There's sort of this double-edged sword. First of all, in Utah, our custody laws favor the mother, and this causes a lot of resentment to good fathers trying to you know, take care of their children. Now, there, there are reasons for this. It was meant to favor the mother and sort of, um, you know, make up for the inequity in women that stay home and things like that. But really, especially in the case of Colorado City, when good fathers are trying to get custody to their kids, they're already working against these laws and they're working against the stereotype of being from the community, being FLDS, coming from the FLDS community. We sort of have this idea that everyone down there are perverts and misguided and abusers. And and so that's working against you, too. So I just want to throw that out there because this explains the complication and the stereotypes of how we've spent a century othering these communities. And these are the lived costs when someone is trying to get their children from their own community to as a protection for them. You run into these biases. So do you want to speak on that or do you want to talk about? One of the things that this culture is very, very much an adapter. We adapt to the public scrutiny or we adapt to to the public sympathy or we adapt to the secrecy or we adapt to things that we wouldn't normally, right? And one of the things that came out of that is they had no answer to my legal right as a parent or as a husband. And so following that became this tradition that the grandmas and uh, mothers that were separated would do these la- uh, power of attorney to their caretaker, and it would be notarized by one of the faithful members. And if a son or a husband or someone tried to come and do like I did, the hospital's hands were tied because they had a power of attorney by the patient themselves declaring that they didn't want this or that this person was going to have their care and custody if they were ever disabled or unable to make decisions. And that's another one of the landmines that came out of that experience. They adapted to to that and decided that wouldn't happen. And they began to do power of attorney when fathers and mothers were sent away, they would they would make them sign these little power of attorney slash custody, even though it's not a f- enforceable as a custody document. The parents feel like they've given it up. They they feel like they've signed it over. It was very formal and official and with great pomp and ceremony. 
it was notarized. So it, it has to be a binding document, and I can't undo that. And it's taken some real effort to educate those that these are the landmines that we have to walk through. And I just want to give another shout out to folks like Roger Houle, who is an attorney from Salt Lake, who does he does all this work pro bono, from what I understand, uh, works tirelessly. I've been with Roger when he was reuniting a mother with children, and it's it is intense. It's intense work. You have to have a marshal there and a sheriff who is usually F- FLDS and great resistance, great uh, for lack of a better term, brainwashing against the parents, and so. It is not a happy reunion. One of the things that that happened after I was able to bring for Mother's Day that year, we were able to bring our sons home too. And we finally had the family back together after almost two years of separation. And the girls, through this connection, this caretaker mother or whatever, the priesthood mother that was assigned to them, they were given a smartphone or, or a phone that they were told to keep everything secret and hidden so I couldn't ever see it. And then they were very specifically coached by a, those that were close to law enforcement, those that knew what a CPS investigation looked like, those that knew what a family safety assessment was. And I, I was there taking care of my wife in a total dependent condition, as well as my three sons. Plus, I had five girls that were, you know, passive-aggressive and uncooperative and very obstructive and, and rebellious in that sense. But I would do the extra effort to do the laundry that they wouldn't do and would leave in the hall. So it was a trip hazard for mother and the dishes that would pile up and make the home look ill-kept and un- untidy. And I'd open the fridge and see a, a pan of food garbage in the fridge. And it was just bizarre things that, that didn't make any sense. And uh, we had connections with some state officials and a very dear friend in the Domestic Violence Council. And they were communicating with my wife and one day her her phone quit working with that contact and began to realize that the contact had been altered that somehow the children had changed the number and after two or three times of that I saved the contact under a pseudonym and instructed her that if ever anything came up was to to call this other name well Later that week, something came up, and they pushed the matter to a point of confusion and distress, and we ended up 7 o'clock on a Friday night. The marshal showed up to my house, and we, we heard that someone had committed domestic violence at this address. I said, there's no domestic violence here. And on the interview of a 6-year-old and a 9-year-old, and an 11-year-old that claimed that I'd hit her. That was enough. And on a Friday night at 7, knowing that I had no resource or money, they arrested me on domestic violence against a child. And these officers were officers that I helped train. These were my dear friends. 
and they knew that I knew that they were out of line. And I knew that what they were doing was at one of those landmines. They would get a free three-day hold out of the deal by bucking them on a Friday night after seven. They couldn't see a judge till Monday after one. And they would sit and sit in jail for three days because they couldn't bail out. So here you are yet again in the situation of being accused by something in a lose-lose situation where you, you have to, I mean, you have to comply with being arrested and you can't, I mean, obviously it's not true, but it's almost as if your children have been coached to almost believe it's as if it was true. And so you're, you're stuck in this situation yet again. So what do you do? So all began when I went and gathered up my boys. They're in, they were in home health care at the time. And the people at home health were FLDS faithful. And when I came and took the children without permission from the church, the caretaker at the time just says, you need to call home health and let them know that you'd, you've got the boys. Well, they're going right back to the address where we were. I mean, they've served these children for 11 years at at that address. This office manager basically said, if you don't take them back where they belong, we will not provide you service. And again, I had the legal background and the medical knowledge. And I said, you will be there at 7 or you will be in violation of discrimination. You will be there at seven. And she made it clear that she would not. So I called the manager in St. George because the company was owned in the greater area. It wasn't, it was just a satellite office in the community. And I explained to the manager, if you have one complaint of discrimination, all your federal funding gets put on hold. You don't want this. There is an employee that will come to the home. They don't feel threatened. Of course, the supervisor's reply was, I can't force my employees to go into that home. They fear for their lives. Without any justification of that, all of the employees refused, except there were two that were non-members. And they said, I'm a nurse, I'm an aide, I'll come take care of them. And so the, the care for the boys carried on. But now these employees are at odds with their employer. And they were served a legal notice that they needed to deal with this. And it was imperative to that employer to get to the bottom of it. The supervisor just happened to be... Um, she used to be married to the, or she was married to the, the former chief of police. And she knew the rules. She knew the way. And she needed me arrested for domestic violence to vindicate her, her discrimination stance. Long story short, I was, charges were dropped. They were unsustained charges. And when I showed up for court on Monday, they just said we dismissed the the case. We we refused to to prosecute the case, but to refuse to prosecute is 
one, the incompetence of the officer, or two, there's corruption in the police force. And instead of doing that, they said, well, I'll just pound it to another county, and he's been a friend, so we've got a conflict of interest anyway. So the neighboring county, it took a year before they finally looked at the evidence and dropped the charges. But through that whole experience, the girls were being coached by a law enforcement influence, whether it was that home health lady or others. They definitely understood the CPS protocol, and they had weaponized our protective protocols within the state to protect children. So as much as they love to hate CPS or DCFS, they're the first ones to call. I happened to be bailed out by some friends almost quicker than I got booked into jail. And as quick as the officer realized that, 10 o'clock at night, he calls the DCF hotline and makes a complaint and reports that this dependent adult has been abandoned. Only he's the one that took me from her. And now I'm under a restraining order to not go back to that address for three days until I can get before a judge and have that, re re which is just typical domestic violence protocol. And this is perfect to what you were saying, which is they're so adaptable, right? So it, not just adaptable, but really great at creating confusion and working through loopholes and then creating new loopholes that then have to be addressed through the legal system. And you were very clearly a victim of this. All the while, from their perspective, they think that they are justified. This is God's law. Um, their Mormonism is something that, you know, it's hard for me to recognize as Mormonism anymore because it come, becomes so much about these what I would call secret combinations almost from, from the Book of Mormon. So I can hear listeners listening to this. Their minds are probably blown. I don't think they realize the int intricacies of how complicated this is for people to leave the FLDS. And, and they're probably saying, what can be done? What can we do? What should we do? And in light of that, in my attempt to tell both sides of the story and to understand the bind that faithful people are in, because like we talked about, they think they're doing the right thing. It's clearly not the moral thing, breaking up families, false accusations, and poisoning children against their fathers. There's no justification in my mind or in God's mind to do that. I mean, if that's God, no thank you. I don't want to have anything to do with a God that does things like that. But what can be done holding space for faithful people and yet protecting innocent people like yourself? One of the things I've come to understand, and, and I have adopted this language, and that is, this is not who they are. This is where they are. And this is not what I was born into. This is what it became over the last 15 years. And my children today are very well integrated into society. They have specifically, I would coach my, my high school children and my, my older daughter now, and I would say, I'm done telling you what to think. I will teach you how to think. I want you to follow your heart. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. And I want you to choose. 
and I don't want you to cast on me the burden of your salvation, and I will not cast the burden of my salvation on any mortal man. I will bear that, and when it gets too heavy to bear, I'll lay it at our Savior's feet, and I will move forward to be constructive, to build up, to give friendship to those that seem struggling in their self-confidence. There's a poem that was written called Eternal Goodness by John Greenleaf Whittier. It's a lengthy poem. But after I had come to that point of the brink of despair, I wrote that in perfect penmanship to Warren as my final letter of confession. And if it's something that's interesting, look it up. But I, I've come back to the community and I, I've come to this understanding. If I can't stand for what's right, who can? I'm uniquely qualified to make a stand for right. And I will do what's the next right thing. And I'm not here to stake my ego and say, I am right. I will be right. I'm here to do what's right. A year ago in March was the presidential preferential, uh, preferential vote in Utah was the first time that the state of Utah did the caucus preference. But in order to do that, they had to have every precinct in order. The Hilldale precinct was not in order. And I was one of those that they called upon to put the precinct in order. And for the first time in 40-something years, we had a valid neighborhood caucus. And we saw 1,100% improvement or increase in voter participation. We're seeing the community rallying around and taking responsibility for their freedoms and their rights, duties, and responsibilities. And things are changing. And it's because there are those like yourself and others that are extending the hand of fellowship in good faith and trying to understand. And I commend you for that. And I appreciate the opportunity to share just a sliver of my experience. But that is, that is my motive for this, is to extend the good faith that we, the people of this state, maintain that charity for one another and try to be compassionate in what we're, what we're doing. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come and do this and to meet me and to bring your wife so I can meet her as well. And to tell your story, it's, it's a harrowing story and it's a story of great courage. And in very many ways, I mean, it's very Mormon to me in the sense that we all are faced with these moments of standing for truth and righteousness, right? Even if it's at the expense of our leaders. And that's, that's a hard thing to do. And so I commend you for that. Is there anything you want listeners to know? Is there any projects they can support? What's the best way to support you in the work you're doing? I guess just to give you a little background of what I'm doing. I've been three years full-time taking care of my family. It's required that. And with some changes in those circumstances within the last months, I've been able to take on more responsibility. 
I'm currently running for the Hildale Town Council, and we're we're going to, you know, the official candidacy isn't till June, but this is the effort we're putting forward to unite our community. Our cities are in dishonor. They're found by a court of law and a jury of peers that they are guilty of crimes. And the judge is yet to, depending on when you air this interview, the judge is yet to issue the judgment. But we, the people, are the ones that hold the responsibility for that, our rights and freedoms. And we have to stand up and take responsibility for that. You know, some of our founding fathers says, we get the government we deserve. And if we have a government that's dysfunctional, we've been dysfunctional in our accountability. And for us to stand up through the, the democratic republic that was given to us and take ownership in our community, take ownership in our government, and to be a contributor to our, our neighborhood, to our community, to our county, to our state, and be an active participant and no longer be content to be the victims of days gone by. We're, we're ready to be powerful in our presence and to be, to be proactive and to, to be empowered in our, our stand. And the LDS Church has done a lot to support me and my family. And I don't have any ill ill will for any of them. I'll build up those who are building up. And I, I think many, many of you that will hear this were contributors to my welfare and to the welfare of my family. There were many that worked greatly. And I thank you deeply for that. Well, thank you for coming on, and thank you for listening. We're going to link the poem, and if we get information about your candidacy, it is a big deal if you understand how dysfunctional the government has been and how, I mean, it really, it, it's a different country down there, you guys. It's not run like a regular city or a regular county in, in some ways. So the fact that they uh, locals are trying to reclaim the town and run it as a functioning government it has a lot of barriers, but it's a big deal. So uh, thank you again. just wanted to comment about that. The um, community came about because a group of homesteaders invited friends that were refugees, as it were. And it went from a homestead to a collective, to a village, to a community. And it became incorporated in a city out of necessity to get federal funding for a sewer and water treatment facility. And so even the incorporation of that city was a function of our culture. And it wasn't until the culture took a left turn that there had to be a separation of that. It should have been all along. Everyone knows that. But when everyone's on the same page and we're all working together, it's like Salt Lake. That was that was how Salt Lake came to be, and over time we've had to adapt to an an unbiased third party government that could be fair to all peoples represented, and that's where we're at. It's a natural process, and 
it's time for the city government to be accountable to the laws of the state outside of the oversight of the church. Well, and I can just say from my perspective, I'm sitting here uh, looking at you across the table. I, I've interviewed hundreds of people, talked to thousands of people in the work that I do, and you you do seem like a genuine, deep man of integrity from your soul. And um, you can feel it. You can feel your spirit, your your sense of integrity. So I really appreciate that, and I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you, Lindsay. Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.